Hi, I'm Rima, and you're listening to Think Like a Scientist. In this show, we break down barriers between scientific thinking and modern-day actions. We do this by interviewing groundbreaking leaders for the result of providing you real-life tools and experiences that you can use to bring positive impact. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Think Like a Scientist. Today I interviewed Dr. Austin Perlmutter and we had such an amazing conversation. We talked about topics spanning from prevention and chronic diseases, immune health, COVID-19, and as it relates to depression and um, so many important topics as well as how to increase our self-awareness, starting from brain health, mental health, and how to really be aware of our own biological responses so that we can make better decisions. We also talked about social media and how it plays a role in our lives and how to really be intentional with our use with social media. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I learned so much and I hope you guys listening will really take from it and Um, really tune in to what he has to say because there were so many critical points and valuable points that were said and emphasized during this conversation. Sit back, relax, listen, enjoy, and let me know what you learned and what were some of the things that may have surprised you during this conversation. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Think Like a Scientist. Today we are going to welcome Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Dr. Austin Perlmutter is a board-certified internal medicine physician, New York Times best-selling author of Brainwash, which he co-authored with his father, Dr. David Perlmutter. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. He is the co-producer of Alzheimer's, the Science of Prevention docuseries. His work connecting COVID-19 with immune-related depression appears in the peer-reviewed scientific journal Frontiers. His writing is also featured on MedPage Today, Psychology Today, Doximity, Kevin MD, Medium, and Mind Body Green. Dr. Austin Perlmutter also hosts the Get the Stuck Out podcast, where he essentially identifies and resolves the biological root of stuckness in the body and brain that leads to poor choices and provides practical solutions to living a happier and fuller life. After his training, he started to look around him for correlations, such as, are people with money really happier? He realized that most people were chasing the same thing, but still feeling the same sense of discontent. Dr. Austin believes that our current model of healthcare is unsustainable. He strives to look for what does work. He aims to distinguish marketing gimmick from what has been evidently shown to actually work. Dr. Austin now currently focuses on helping people improve their health through behavioral changes, better decisions, neuroscience, and lifestyle interventions. Welcome, Dr. Austin. Thank you for having me, and thank you for such a delightful biography. (laughs) No problem. I wanted to start from the beginning. What encouraged you to go to medical school? Well, I will say from the start, I was never one of those people who said, I want to be a doctor. I wasn't three years old and walking around with a stethoscope. I did have and do have uh, doctors in my family. My dad is a neurologist. His dad was a neurosurgeon. But for me, um, I have to say there are kind of two things that drew me to medicine. And it was really later in my college years that I decided to do this. One was I love science. And the other one is I love helping people. And I guess there's a third one, which is I like synthesis. I like taking complicated information and trying to distill it down to what is helpful to an individual. So 
it was a combination of these things with the fact that it was clear to me that so many people were not healthy. And, you know, this is something that many people are aware of, and that is the chronic diseases that we face today are largely preventable. We, we kind of know what we can do. It's, it's not all that complicated. It's, it's eat a healthy diet, exercise, get outside a bit. So I figured if I just went to medical school, I would get the tools necessary to prevent these diseases, to be able to treat these diseases, to be an effective clinician. And, you know, not to jump too far ahead here, but it wasn't what I found. And what led you to start questioning the standard level of care? Was it was it something that you knew beforehand, before you went into medical school, or was it something you came across after? Well, my dad is is definitely a, an instrumental figure in, in my life as a whole, but he had, from an early age, kind of shown me the value of questioning the way that we uh, look at medical care. He had always looked at novel solutions, looked at additional solutions, and looked at ways that we could potentially minimize the downside risk of many of our kind of conventional therapeutics. So he had always had this idea about prevention and lifestyle modification being key. And definitely that was infused into me in a very early age. Um, But when it comes to understanding the idea that kind of standard of care medicine doesn't work, I think it did actually take my medical training to show me the futility of so much of what we do. And I want to be clear, I'm not trying to poo-poo modern medicine at all. I think that it is incredibly effective, but it's effective for certain things and not other things. So if I break my arm, of course, I'm going to go to the ER. I want that bone to be fixed. Um, If I have an acute infection, yes, I'm going to go to the ER because antibiotics are incredible. But where modern medicine tends to fail is at prevention. And you and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, um, I don't think prevention is or can be distributed in a, a doctor's office. I don't think it can be disseminated in a hospital. I think prevention really has to be a question of saying, how are we living our lives? And the years, the decades that come before you ever seeing a doctor, because prevention is about the decisions that we make. It's about our mental health. It's about the way that we see the world. And until we look at those types of variables, we're always going to be chasing our tails. We're always going to be looking at the downstream manifestations of what happened decades beforehand. So really what I'm thinking is to properly address prevention, we can't be relying on physicians. We can't be relying on on healthcare providers that work in the clinic simply because that's not the way that they're trained and also because that's not necessarily where people are so receptive to the types of changes necessary to engage in proper prevention. That's a really great point where I think it really does come down to accountability. How do you think, you know, we can increase accountability before, you know, these chronic diseases start to be expressed? Yeah. So I I kind of feel like there are are two major arms that we need to take uh, as it relates to how we properly prevent. And the first point I will make is prevention is a consequence of decision-making, largely decision-making. Certainly there are things outside of our control, right? So air pollution causes a lot of health issues. It's linked to cognitive decline. It's linked to heart disease, but you may not decide, especially early in life to live somewhere with higher levels of air pollution or lower levels of air pollution. That decision may be outside of what you are consciously able to choose. However, as we get older, we get more autonomy over the choices we make. We have the ability to maybe choose a healthy food or not choose a healthy food. 
So we really have to look at the decision-making component of that. When it comes to this decision-making though, and again, this is that branch point where there are these two big variables, I think part of it is consciously understanding how we make choices and kind of changing our brains such that we are able to uh, make better choices. That might include things like accountability. So it might mean you're more accountable to yourself and you come up with a framework that allows you to achieve that, you know, as simple as writing down each day, did I or didn't I exercise? Or maybe calling up a friend and checking in with them. But the other piece that I think is mostly missed is that in order to make better choices to prevent diseases, we need to be looking at how we wire our unconscious brains. That's the piece of it where you're not in active conversation saying, should I eat this junk food or shouldn't I? Is it in a consistent choice with the diet that I chose or is it not? That's the piece that gets to things like habit formation. That's the piece that gets to these unconscious or subconscious actions that are happening always below the surface. And it also brings up questions of our environment, right? So we tend to make decisions based on what is around us. You may not think about this, but I don't mean you, I'm sure you do. <laughs> but if, if you have snacks in your house, you are more likely to eat those snacks, independent of whether you consciously want to or not. You're increasing those probabilities. So when again, we come to this question of prevention, I think we have to look at both the conscious strategies, which may include something like accountability, and we need to include these unconscious strategies that basically make it more likely for us to both wire our brains for better decisions and for in the moment, our unconscious choices to better reflect where we're trying to get to. That's a really great point. There's also something that, that reminded me um, while you were speaking that you brought up when I think one of your on one of the episodes that you were in, oftentimes when someone experiences mental health uh, issues like depression, we often blame it on the person rather than the environment. And that's something you talked uh, briefly about in that episode. Uh, can you expand more on that? Yeah, and I'm very flattered that you listened to my podcast um, or a podcast that I was on. But I think that this is a very important point. And that is it's actually something I've been talking about for several years. It's basically the idea that despite the advances we've seen in neuroscience, despite the fact that we know our behavior is an outgrowth of our brain function, we, we still tend to look at people's behaviors, their thought patterns as a personality thing, as a psychological construct rather than a biological construct. I'm not trying to take anything away from psychology. Psychology is a really helpful way of understanding biology, and it's obviously very closely interwoven with our neurobiology. But when we look at something like depression, or perhaps a better example would be a person's ability to quit smoking, right? We would say that's an example where a person could just have more willpower that still most people today look at a person's ability to quit smoking or not as a function of their willpower, their character strength. And we know that there are changes that happen in the brain that can predispose to addiction. We know that people who have addiction show changes in the brain. We know there's a biology to it. And similarly, when we look at depression, a lot of our conversation is around things that we should just think about differently. I've heard people say this before, just kind of snap out of it. You know, usually it's not somebody who has uh, bona fide major depression or generalized anxiety, but it'll be, oh, this person's in a funk, just snap out of it, right? You should just get your, your stuff together and pull yourself together and move forward. And it ignores this fundamental concept, which is our biology drives our behavior, drives our, our mood, drives our mental state. So what I try to get people to understand is 
when we are looking at a desire to change our behavior, when we're looking at a desire to change our mood, there's more to it than simply looking at that first layer of here's how a person is behaving, here's how they, we want them to behave, here's how we want them to think, and just shift your mindset. It really has to do with our underlying biology. This is, of course, the basis for things like SSRIs, these serotonin reuptake inhibitors that target the serotonin system. But as it relates to depression, and a big part of my advocacy is for people to understand that there are many pathways involved with depression. So there are changes with what's called neuroplasticity, the wiring of the brain. There are changes that relate to the immune system. So specifically inflammation may promote uh, depression. There are changes related to the HPA axis, which is the stress system, changes related to vascular system. So there's all of these other ways of looking at this. And really, I just think if we have a little bit more understanding of the science, we gain empathy because it's no longer saying that person is just you know a depressed person that's the way that their mind is. It's saying, what's going on with their brain? And similarly, if I'm experiencing depressed symptoms, maybe I can ask, what can I do to change that biology? Now, certainly I'm not saying don't seek medical care. I think that we, by and large, don't get enough mental health care from professionals. But it is saying that on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, we can do things to improve our mood, to optimize our cognitive function once we start getting a sense of this underlying neurobiology. That's such an incredible point where we, we can we can gain empathy by starting to understand the biology of depressed, you know, these symptoms and what goes through these mental health issues, because it's something that, you know, it's something that's really important. And um, thank you for bringing that up. And it reminded me of the article that you wrote titled uh, The Coronavirus Took Advantage of Our Weaknesses. And you talked about how COVID-19 does, does not affect us all equally due to um, you know, some of the people in the population who already have high inflammation and chronic diseases. Can you expand more on that and how it relates to depression as well? Absolutely. This article that you referenced, I wrote for Medium about a year ago, and I got a lot of feedback around it. Most of it was positive. Some people weren't as sure. But the basic premise of the article was to understand that when we think about infectious diseases, or when we think about immunity, we usually just think about a kind of uh, our body's fight against microbes. The immune system is our body's kind of defense system. That's what it does. And so as it related to infection, it was saying, oh, well, did this person's immune system fight off COVID? Did this person's immune system succumb to COVID? And kind of ignoring all of these other disease states like metabolic diseases, but what we saw very early on in the coronavirus pandemic, and what we tend to see with many diseases, is that our kind of chronic metabolic type conditions, so heart disease, diabetes, obesity, they predispose people to worse outcomes from infection. And this is exactly what we saw in COVID. People with underlying metabolic diseases had a higher rates of hospitalization, had higher rates of severe COVID and complications from COVID, including death. So the point there is it's not like, well, first of all, there's some connection, right, between, let's say, heart disease and diabetes and risk for COVID. And many people would like to think of it as, oh, well, they just weren't as well to start with. And therefore, of course, when, you know, they got sick, they were more likely to have problems. But the kind of theme throughout this is that conditions like diabetes, conditions like heart disease, they show patterns of immune dysfunction consistently they show patterns of inflammatory immune dysfunction. 
And that's exactly the same type of dysfunction that we have seen lead to worse outcomes from COVID. So specifically, I reference something called the cytokine storm. Uh, and the cytokine storm is basically a hyper-inflammatory state that is seen with people who get COVID, who happen to have usually worse outcomes as it relates to COVID. And basically making the connection between saying the same cytokines, those are these little immune proteins you can measure in the bloodstream, the same cytokines that are elevated in the cytokine storm are those that are elevated in people with something like diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So immunity is kind of this organizing theme, but let's connect it to what you were saying. So how does this relate to something like depression? Well, something we've seen pretty consistently in COVID is that people are experiencing higher rates of depression. Uh, and that is for people who have contracted COVID. So one of the more common symptoms that you'll see with people post COVID, including long COVID or long haul COVID is higher rates of mental health conditions, including anxiety, but also depression. Uh, so people with COVID tend to get higher rates of depression, but also people in the planet and like basically across the world, caregivers of people with COVID, people in lockdown, people in general have had higher rates of depression. And so we can think of these as unrelated subjects, or we can think of it as, oh, well, people are feeling depressed because they've been hospitalized. They're not able to do the fun stuff anymore. They're not able to, you know, basically enjoy the, the things that they used to. But again, the immune system. So what we now understand is that people with depression tend to have higher levels of immune activation, specifically inflammation. And they have the same elevations in cytokines that we see in the cytokine storm. So this is kind of skipping ahead here a little bit, but the point that I wanted people to make is we tend to look at these things in silos. We say a person gets an infectious disease, a person gets a cardiometabolic disease, a person experiences depression, and those things are separate. But the truth of the matter is that we have these systems like the immune system that run through everything that help to explain some of our biological processes that influence our brain function. And so the more we can start teasing out this science, the more we can start coming up with solutions that aren't boxed into that one kind of channel. So we think about, let's say obesity, we say obesity, you know, depending on where you are on the spectrum, as far as your scientific understanding is an issue with diet and exercise. Now I'm hoping most people don't look at it as that simple anymore, but it also turns out that there's an inflammatory response that happens in people with obesity because fat cells tend to have these reactions that produces more inflammatory markers. Those inflammatory markers change the brain. So the point here being, once we understand the immune system is involved with this, we can start thinking about different therapeutics that act on the immune system. Similarly with metabolism, right? So we can think about how metabolism may be off in obesity and maybe target that as well. The way we tend to look at it though, is similar to the way we look at other conditions where it's just, this is an issue with willpower, right? It's an issue with people not eating the right foods, not exercising enough. And I think it's so backwards that despite all of this science, that's still where the conversation goes. It's still where you'll go, you know, if you go on Twitter, people on Instagram are commenting on things that are so superficial when we know so much better. So the advocacy is basically just to say, science becomes a portal for empathy, for understanding, but also for better solutions, because we're no longer hindered by this fact that we're looking at it from such a kind of superficial personality, character-driven concept, and we're able to 
break down some of the barriers that might otherwise have separated us from other people because we just blame it on their person as opposed to asking about their biology. Wow, that's great. So would you say really the root causes of many of these issues are that they're just really interconnected? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think coming back to, again, something that we talked about earlier, when you think about what are the issues that we're experiencing today? Um, I mean, I guess, let me just ask you this. What do you think are the biggest health concerns of the modern day? Well, right now, I know there are a lot of, uh, obviously, obesity, a lot of uh, increases in uh, cancers, digestive cancers, that I think 90% of them are are majorly preventable. Uh, We have a lot of increase in heart disease as well, blood pressure, diabetes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so this isn't a universal thing. There are things that come up either because of genes or because things happen in life that are that are not, let's say, preventable. I'm not trying to deny that at all. But when you look at the list of the top 10 killers around the planet, the one that stays at the top is cardiovascular diseases. And we kind of know that a lot of that is preventable. And there's a ton of overlap between something like heart disease and diabetes, right? They tend to be comorbid conditions. And the reason is they share pathophysiology. So that might be everything from insulin signaling to elevated levels of inflammation. Um, but the bottom line to all of this is they're not kind of these siloed conditions. You, you could have a siloed condition. If you get in a car accident and you die, that may not be related to any of these other things, right? That's kind of a different conversation about prevention and seatbelts and the like. But the piece of it that I try to get people to understand is as it relates to the things that are most likely to take you out of the game. So that will lead you to increased mortality and morbidity, meaning dying earlier and not really enjoying life as much during the time you are alive. These are things we can do things about, but the doing things about it, we've kind of always, well, at least when I say always in conversations that I have had tend to do with, as long as I provided the right advice to somebody, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, eat some vegetables on occasion, move your body. That's all that we can do. And in the absence of a person changing their mind on that, there's nothing else there, right? You wait until a person gets a bona fide disease, and then we have medications because we have a diagnostic code. We can treat it with antihypertensive, heart failure medications, diabetes medications. And what I'm saying is the biology is telling us what is happening upstream from that. And the the major focal point that I like to talk about is what is happening within our brains, because our brains are the drivers of our cognition, and they're the drivers of our mental state. You know, something I don't think people understand is that mental health is kind of the unifying issue from which so much else becomes problematic. You can think about in medicine, whether something is a primary outcome or a surrogate outcome. So if I was to say, uh, I took a bunch of people into the clinic, and I measured their levels of inflammation, that inflammation might be the primary outcome as far as my interest. But when it comes to the patient and what they care about most, they probably don't care about their levels of C-reactive protein. That's a, an inflammatory marker. They, they probably don't care about that. I mean, similarly, a patient may not care about their cholesterol levels, right? Like at the end of the day, you're not on your deathbed saying, I really wish you know my cholesterol, this and that. What you're concerned about is, did you live an enjoyable life, right? Those are the things that actually drive people to make changes. So certainly cholesterol could maybe lead to heart disease. Heart disease could lead to worse quality of life and shorter life. But the point is, if a person is enjoying life, if a person's mental health is good, that is in and of itself the most important thing from my perspective. And really it drives then behaviors. 
When a person is in the right cognitive and mental space, making healthier choices is a totally different ballgame than a person who is in a, a depressed state. So something that I've been exploring recently is how we're biased brain-wise in different mental health conditions. People with depression, as well as in other mental health conditions, tend to make worse decisions. And that's based on the fact they make more short-term focused decisions. So our brains change in these conditions of poor mental health. And then that drives increased risk for unhealthy behaviors and increased risk for then these preventable conditions. So I'm just increasingly doubling down on this thing, which is we have to focus first on the brain. We have to focus first on cognition and mental health, because if we don't do that first, we're really just looking at the tail end of this. We're, far, we're way too far downstream. Oh, that's great that it really does start with the brain, because at the end of the day, the decisions that we take and the accountability does rely on the individual. And it starts with the brain, like you said. Well, speaking of that, how... Um, you know, if someone listening here is new or resistant to the, to the idea that, you know, this, how, how our body is connected and just all the, the things that we spoke about, about how these things are interconnected, especially how it starts with the brain and decision-making, what would you say? So this, everyone has their own journey. And when I was in your place a couple of years into college, you know, now, even as we're speaking, I'm realizing a lot of these terms I'm using, I had no idea. So if, if for people who are listening or watching right now, if you don't understand some of what I'm saying, that is totally expected. And I apologize for being a little bit too technical. So let's go to some ideas that I think are, are really at the core of all of this, which is, I think when we, when you look at the things that, that we can do to improve our quality of life in a given day, um, so much of it is dependent on how you feel and how you think. Right. So if you're feeling better, if you're feeling well, you tend to do things differently than if you're not feeling well. You respond to your mental state. So if you get stressed, you will act differently than if you're not stressed. People who are stressed, myself included, will feel more like, I don't know, binge watching Netflix or eating a bunch of ice cream. We're trying to cope. Right. And what basically comes up for many people is that we live in a cycle of reacting to these negative psychological states. And we live in a cycle of responding to our biology rather than directing our biology. Unfortunately, we're in a time where there are very smart people whose job it is to direct our thinking, to focus our attention. So whether that's on social media or the TV you watch or the ads you see, or even walking into a grocery store and the way that the fruits and vegetables or the processed food is stacked, all of these things are set up in such a way that they are designed to lead you to a certain action. And the reality of the modern day is that if you don't start understanding how other people are trying to change your mind, you will basically act in a way that tends to damage your health. So it comes at the expense of your health and your mental health. So why I think it's so fundamental that we pay attention to the way that our brains work is that is, I think, one of the only ways that we start to gain control over our actions, that our actions begin to reflect what we want, what is best for us, rather than what other people want and what is best for them. So that, that's really where I would start. I mean, I think trying to get a sense as to when you are reacting to something in an unhealthy way is an awesome way to get a sense as to how important your brain structure is and how your biology directs the way that you think. 
the stress pathway is probably the easiest one. So next time you're stressed or even think back to the last time you were stressed, think about how you felt, think about how you behaved. And if you can feel the difference between the resting, calm, reflective version of you and the reactive, impulsive version that was stressed, you can understand how your biology shapes the way you think and the way you act. So that's so empowering once you start to understand how that works. I mean, this is part of why I love the, the whole field of mindfulness, because it will show you how just with some deep breathing, with a little bit of meditation, you can change the way that you feel and the way that you respond to the world. It's the whole idea of biofeedback. You can not only understand your biology, but change your biology consciously. And I think that's something that we all fundamentally need more of because we are living in a world where everyone is reactive and we wind up just unconsciously moving through the day, hurting other people physically, mentally, hurting ourselves physically and mentally because no one is so interested in saying what's actually happening here. But we all have the ability to pause that, to start reflecting, to start directing. And it, I think it really fundamentally comes down to brain biology. How do you increase awareness and how would you advise, uh, you know, if someone was listening here and mm -hmm. really wanted to increase their self-awareness so that they could really be aware of how they're responding to their biology and better make uh, better decisions? Yeah, this is a really good question. I think there are many ways to do this and many people with more expertise in this that would have their preferred way. I mean, I think, again, mindfulness is, is front and center here. So taking the breather when you feel angry, stressed, whatever, and just allowing yourself to be aware of how you're feeling. That is, that is a really quick way. Or for example, taking time each day to pay attention to your breath. That's another way to build awareness about your, basically your biology and how that you can feel how that changes the way that you are experiencing the moment to moment. Um, I choose meditation every day because it gives me awareness of how chaotic things are inside of my brain. I close my eyes and I think I'm just going to focus on my breath and go into a state of Zen. And immediately it's like somebody, you know, did one of those party poppers in my brain. There are so many <laughs> random ideas flying around and, you know, I've learned not to judge myself for that, but the point is to become aware of the fact that this is the state of things. This is the baseline state of things. And certainly I feel like this has gotten better since I started meditating. Um, the one intervention that I really like for people to use is to be paying attention to their sleep. And the reason for this, as it relates to your question around awareness is a lot of people are talking about diet, exercise, those types of things. I think they're fundamental. I think exercise and diet are key to health. However, when you're looking at how your brain changes in a meaningful way, not just at a biological level, but at a psychological level where you can experience, you can say, my brain is functioning objectively, or I should say subjectively differently in this moment. It can take weeks, months before diet can have that effect. Exercise, you know, you will feel something after exercise, but you may not necessarily feel the mental health and the cognitive clarity immediately after. But with one night of bad sleep, you will feel it. You will feel your brain is different. And one night of good sleep can be the exact opposite. So I like to really have people build awareness around how much sleep changes the state of their mental health, changes the state of their cognitive health. You really just need a portal 
right? You need a little doorway that shows you how powerful these interventions are and that shows you that you are not the same person moment to moment. You know, there's this kind of idea of a, a self that is consistent across time, that you're the same person you were yesterday, but you turn over your cells, you know, millions of immune cells each day, billions of cells overall. And to get a sense of how different we are day to day based on our choices, based on our sleep, that enables you to understand not only that you can optimize to be a better version of yourself, but that you aren't the same person moment to moment. And you get to choose which of those people you want to be. So long-winded way of saying, several ways of building awareness. I really like sleep, but any form of mindfulness, I think is an amazing first place to start. That's such a great point. And thank you for emphasizing the importance of sleep in our, in our daily lives. Cause it also reminded me of the term neuroplasticity, which the audience doesn't know is just, you know, the brain's ability to change itself. And it's shown that sleep does strengthen these neural circuits. You've probably, you probably know this, that the neural circuits for learning and, um, you know, especially cause I'm a student. So I like to learn about it and how to inc better increase my learning, better my learning. And that's just one of the things that I learned uh, recently as well. And speaking of um, meditation and just increasing our self-awareness, it also reminded me of social media. Mm -hmm. And what is your take on the role of social media on mental health and self-awareness? Yeah. So let me start with a macro concept and then we'll get to social media. Um, one of the things that I see coming up a lot is the is probably best exemplified by the paleo movement, which is if we just went back to what our ancestors were doing 15,000 years ago, we would be better off, right? So don't farm anything, basically just eat what you can almost hunter gather, um, eat whole foods as opposed to processed foods, be outside, get exercise, and everything will go back to uh, a state of perfection. And so, you know, I think there's, there's definitely something to it as it relates to certain aspects of our lives. I think modern food is terrible and the closer you can get to what you can find in the wild, probably for the best. However, we're not trying to move out into the woods and you know, basically move around and chase down wild caribou. Like no one is doing that. And if you want to, fantastic, have a great time. But if you want to exist in the modern world, you have to make concessions. And what that means is I think looking at all the things that are most valuable to you as far as what you're going to gain from, uh, you know, spiritually, emotionally, and relationships, financially, and then saying, what are you willing to sacrifice to make that happen? So I live in a home with central AC, and I am so thankful for that central AC. And I am willing to, you know, pay a bit more for a home with that central AC, because it helps me to sleep better at night, having that climate control. That's not hunter gather paleo anything. I also really appreciate being able to connect with people on social media. I think that the opportunity to interact with people across the world from a range of backgrounds, to have conversations around these types of topics, and ideally to put out content that helps people improve their quality of life, I really do value that. The cost-benefit trade-off, though, is different for these things. So with the air conditioning, I maybe pay $50 extra a month to have a place with a central air conditioning unit. That's not a huge deal. With social media, we're starting to see that this is something that may have a significant effect on certain populations. Now, I will say myself, there are aspects of social media that I really don't like, and I don't like necessarily what it brings up in me. 
I think it's different for somebody who has, uh, you know, is older, who grew up at a time where social media wasn't a thing, and who has a bit more kind of self-control mechanism. So this is something, you know, you probably already learned, but the brain continues to develop well into the 20s. And one of the things that seems to take the longest to come online is the self-control network. So the prefrontal cortex kind of having a suppressive effect on more impulsive thinking. And I think it's very different, you know, to expose yourself to something with such addictive potential like social media when you have already built in some of the ability to suppress some of those addictive natures. But if you were a kid and you grow up in a, a time where you're getting a constant dopamine hit from every time you open social media, where you have always the social comparison thing happening. And granted, social comparison is important for everyone. That seems to be an evolutionary basis where our relative position in the tribe was super important to our survival. So we care about that a lot. But when you're a kid, social comparison is everything. You know, how important is it to be looking your best when you're going into your junior high class, because that is fundamental to your sense of identity. Uh, you know, the other thing is, so it, it promotes kind of unreasonable social comparison. Um, the, other, the other piece of social media that is, is probably uh, needs to be discussed more is just how much data is being captured about us and how we can be targeted with that data. And we don't really know the long-term outcomes of what that data capture will mean. There's also the thought about, you know, basically regulating what can be said I think as it relates to the explicit data connecting mental health with social media use, it's too early to say whether at a population level, it's having an overall negative effect. You know, there are individual studies showing Facebook users or uh, social media users with higher rates of anxious, depressed, stress type symptoms. There's probably a bit better data though for young people. And so obviously there's a lot happening at the time of this podcast where a recent whistleblower talked about how uh, you know, this is really damaging to people's mental health and concerns specifically for young females. I think that's the strongest data set we have so far, but I don't think it's as clear as saying we know that social media induces anxiety and depressive symptoms, especially in the population. I don't have children right now. If I did, despite the fact that we don't know for sure, I would be very cautious. I would definitely instate a basic age cutoff after which maybe they could use it in a restricted way, but I would not want my five-year-old on social media. Uh, I'm not trying to knock anyone who allows their kids on social media. I just think the, the real key to it is social media isn't a reflection of the world in that it isn't something that is basically you're going to learn anyway. This is the natural state of things. It is algorithms, right? And it's algorithms that are designed to capture attention and people who have designed these algorithms, at least initially, I mean, I think at some point, based on machine learning and other formats of uh, kind of AI, these algorithms are beyond what any individual will understand. But these are algorithms designed to capture attention. They're designed to keep us with our eyes on the screen. And what we know about humans, what we know about how humans process information is that we're drawn to sensationalized, stressful, and negative information. So I think with all of that considered, you know, it is kind of like going into a shark infested ocean. You might be able to go for a nice swim many of those days, but there are always sharks and those sharks have an intention that is not going to be what's best for you. So that's my rambling answer of saying, I would be cautious. I think that we're not clear yet as to the scientific evidence that it directly leads to, you know, an, an odds ratio or hazard of, of a really high number that we can be certain it's like smoking, but there are enough signals from my perspective that I would take it very seriously for adults, but especially for children.
that's such a great analogy as well with the shark and the ocean because I do realize it in myself as well where you know I could go on social media but you know it could elicit some you know feelings and and all of these things depending on what I see and then some days it may be a good thing for me and uh what I've re- what I've done was really I just um right now in the past few months removed the apps on my phone and if I needed to post something or message anyone it would be on my laptop and I would I realized I needed to intentionally do that so I'm not just going to go on scroll I would have a reason as to why I need to go on social media so that's just one of the things that I I implemented in my in my life the past few months regarding social media and I it's helped me a lot and that uh made me a little bit curious I wanted to ask what were the steps that you took to better your mental health with social media and the, you know, busyness of society? Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess those are kind of related, but let's start with social media. Um, when I wrote this book brainwash with my dad, we came up with a framework called the test of time. And I think it, it is a really solid framework. It's not always easy to implement, but it's basically four steps. So time is an acronym. Uh, T is for time restricted, basically saying, you're going to limit the amount of time that you spend, and you're going to define that amount of time prior to going on social media. I is for intentional, meaning have a plan. Something that I've experienced so many times that maybe you can relate to is you think you're going on to, I don't know, check in on your friend from high school who just had a baby. And next thing you know, it's like your third cousin's puppy's first day (laughs) at doggy daycare. And you're like, what happened? Right? So intention seems to be really important. M is for mindful, meaning be aware of how it's affecting you. And this doesn't just go for social media. One of the things I talk about a lot is that the news, I think, has an overall net negative effect for many people. There's this illusion that we're being informed that it's going to improve our quality of life or that we're going to act to help other people as a result of what we've learned. Oh, I heard terrible things are happening over in blank country. Okay, uh, so what do you want to do about that? Oh, nothing. I just, it's terrible, right? Right. That's kind of the standard. So I think there's a, an element of mindfulness where we're aware of how we are being changed or how we're experiencing uh, our exposure to social media. And then E is finally for enriching, which is basically saying you should be coming away from your interactions with media with a net positive where you can say that was beneficial. And if you wind up finishing up your 30 minutes on social or whatever and saying, I just wasted that time, or now I feel stressed. That is a signal to tell a person, tell me that I need to reframe the way I use it. Um, in addition to that, which, you know, I think, again, that framework works really well if you can apply it. A couple of hacks that I've been trying to experiment with recently. So when I go on social media, I try to do it as quickly as I can. So, uh, you know, I, I will check in and then I will turn it off. If I'm going to post on social media, one of the things that I'm really trying to do is if I post I can't check social media for at least an hour afterwards because there is a strong tendency to want to get that immediate dopamine rush to say, did people engage with my post? Did people like it? And the last thing I would say, which again may not work for everyone, is that I try to make it less appealing. And the way that I do that is I grayscale my phone so that when I see Instagram or Twitter or whatever, like it's just black and white. And that means it's It's just not as engaging anymore. Instagram photos aren't so exciting when they're just, you know, looking like negatives. And so uh, I think it's it's something that is is kind of overlooked, which is if you want to change behavior, you basically have to make the healthy behavior easier and the unhealthy behavior harder, but also the healthy behavior more enjoyable and the unhealthy behavior less enjoyable. So you can apply all that stuff to social media, but um, 
you know, I, I think the first place to start for many people though, is, is really to question like, are you enjoying the amount of time you spend on social media? Because if the answer to that is yes, just like if somebody says I'm enjoying the junk food I'm eating, I'm not going to change their desire to drink Coke and eat chips. I've tried that so many times and I forgot to ask the question, which is, do you want to change or are you enjoying these behaviors? And I think same with social media. If somebody's saying, I love my time on Facebook. Okay. Sounds good. If, if you're enjoying that, there are other areas that are maybe more likely to, to give you a bang for your buck as far as changing. That's great. That's thank you for that. It's really informational because um, again, like you mentioned, it does start with the brain and uh, decision-making starts with the brain and having, if that person wants to change, then they will take the, the steps to change and seek those resources to change. And speaking of that, what uh, resources would you um, give for those who are listening? General resources on life. I mean, I think we could go broad here, but you're talking specifically as it relates to the brain. Yeah. As it relates to the brain. So one of the things is, is listening to podcasts. I mean, uh, I think this conversation has been helpful for me in understanding these things. And I think that just the first thing is getting some exposure to new ideas, new ways of thinking about things. So if you're interested in learning about the brain, there are a number of excellent podcasts out there. Uh, Andrew Huberman has a really excellent one where he talks about a variety of topics related to neuroscience. If that doesn't work for you, I think find a book or go on Medium or, you know, you could even just Google and find some kind of pop science-y articles. But the point is, find what excites you and then dive into those rabbit holes. Because just thinking you're going to learn neuroscience, because why not? It doesn't work. I mean, this has happened to me. I've ordered books that I thought I'll be interested in this, but if it's not actually interesting and engaging, you're not going to follow through with it. So Finding that first place of entry is great. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously already care about this a bit. I'm biased. I did write a book on this subject. It's called Brainwash. You can find it anywhere books are sold. Uh, I also have a podcast called Get the Stuck Out, which you alluded to in the introduction. I talk about a lot of these topics as well. You can also find all this random writing and stuff that I do. If you go to my website, it's austinperlmutter.com. Um, but I think really coming back to the original point, Find what's meaningful to you and explore that because there will be so much more value in understanding brain science through the lens of what's happened in your life and the way you experience your day-to-day than just thinking you're going to go and learn everything about the brain and it's going to be relevant or if it's going to even stick in your head. When I had to memorize stuff, you know, so for those watching, uh, you know, there's a little anatomic model on the shelf behind you and I took anatomy in med school. Do I remember everything I learned? Absolutely not. And the reason is it's not relevant, right? All the bones are important when I have to pass a test, important if I'm seeing someone in the clinic and I'm worried about, you know, some sort of osteoporosis or osteoarthritis, but if you don't use it, you will forget it. So I think as it relates to finding what matters with in your life, that it's going to be tethered to something you care about, that's the first foray I would have into the world of brain health. That's such a great point for, because we really do need to, instead of looking at, you know, what should we know, it's how does, or the things that we need to seek out, how does it relate to ourselves? Because it does, you know, the the information that I remember and the knowledge that I remember when reading books are things that relate to my life and, um, or things that I really want to learn because I enjoy it and it's very engaging to me. And I was also curious, have you, 
because uh, well we you have mentioned it have you faced a lot of resistance on social media speaking about things like this and the connection between mental health and um you know these diseases and how would you go about raising awareness without you know causing those who are resistant to push back more this is a really good question um i think one thing that's happened is you know, social media is kind of a unique spot because people get into their little silos and they almost define themselves by who they're against as opposed to what they're for. And so, uh, you know, I don't take strong stands necessarily in the nutrition space. And that's one of the most highly charged spaces on social media, as you might've seen. In the mental health space, I want to be as upfront, clear about this as I can, which is that I am not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist and I am not treating patients right now with depression. So my goal throughout all of this has just been to explore the science and put things together in a way that I hope is helpful to other people. And that really gets to the biology of depression. And, you know, I think it helps as far as people listening to my opinion that I've, I've spent a lot of time with this, that I've published peer reviewed literature on it, that, you know, I have treated many patients with depression, but uh, I don't think there's been a whole lot of pushback from the biological perspective. And I think part of that is like, the people that tend to interact with the content aren't necessarily the people who would challenge on the biology. They may just not, it may not be something that they relate to. Um, I think once you start having opinions that start to get into the blame space, which is where a lot of this is, it's have agency, make changes in your life. You need to take on, you know, you need to have more willpower in psychology. That's where people get charged. And I think I've explicitly gone away from that. Now I will say one of the areas where uh, maybe I have gotten a little bit of pushback is trying to draw attention to kind of marketing tactics and psychology and the like, and, and people saying, oh, well, you know, is this helpful? And to that, I, I think the answer is I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe there are people out there who will really benefit from starting to see behind the curtain a little bit and, you know, understanding like that everything is a play for your attention. Everything is a play for your decision-making. Um, but by and large, uh, I think the ideas I put out have been well-received and that people have not really pushed back too much as far as having disagreements with the way that I portray the information. And last thing I'll just say on that is, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm making much up here. You know, it's not like I'm coming up with opinions that are just my own and therefore um, people can feel free to charge, uh, to challenge I try to draw directly from what I believe to be and what I think our, other people would argue is the best scientific literature on the subject. So I'm not trying to sensationalize stuff beyond just telling people that you have to start making changes to your life if you want a decent chance at a happy, healthy life, because the baseline or the, the default is so bad. Um, so not quite as controversial an answer as maybe you were looking for it, but uh, you know, I think it's been really wonderful to interact with so many people with different opinions and by and large people have been supportive of my mission in this in this space and speaking of um i know you spoke briefly about this and you emphasized you know the importance of sleep what's something that you think is not as, as advised as much but um needs to be more emphasized on and i know you speak briefly about this but if someone listening or watching where to take one thing out of this, what would you give them? Specifically as it relates to sleep or about the whole conversations? Or about the whole conversation? You know, I, I think, there, let me give two answers. 
the first one is if you want to do something that is going to really quickly improve your health, your specifically your brain health, I would say just give yourself the opportunity to get a good sleep tonight. That's it. That's really it. There are lots of ways you can do that, but fundamentally making that intervention, I think is the quickest way to improve your brain function for the next day. As it relates to a more general statement, the one thing I would want people to take away is that we have to question this stuff. We have to question the science. We have to bring in science. And we can't assume that just because people have conversations about this stuff on social media, that it's in any way grounded in what's best for us. The world is not set up to optimize for what is best for you. That's just what it is. That's not the way the United States is optimized. That's not the way other countries are optimized. We look at GDP. We don't look at happiness. We don't look at health outcomes. Those are secondary. So I would say to a person who is listening to this, the most important thing I can tell you is just to start questioning. Question what is valuable to you. What are the outcomes that you care about? And then ask whether what you're doing is in alignment with those outcomes. Um, you know, I think what happens to many people, myself included, is that early in life, for a variety of reasons, we kind of set a trajectory. And that might lead us to certain schools, to certain occupations, to certain relationships, to even moving to different places. And we don't reevaluate to ask whether that trajectory is in alignment with what we care about. Because what we care about can change. We learn about ourselves. We learn about what we value. And I think what happens to a lot of us is we all of a sudden find ourselves in a situation where what we're doing our environment, our job, our relationships is completely out of sync with what we actually care about. And often we don't necessarily understand that's what's wrong, but we feel off, right? Something's wrong, go through a midlife crisis or whatever it might be. So I would just say the questioning piece has to happen. The constructs that we inherit from our parents that are given to us by our, our schoolmates, that our, our teachers teach us early on in life are not necessarily the constructs that are best for us. And if we see the fact that so many people, I would say the average person is suffering with this stuff, the results of these defective constructs, then we have to assume that most people need to rethink the way that they approach life. So that's, it's kind of a, a heavy piece to end on, but I think that's, that's really key to the, be able to, uh, for many people to be able to change their trajectory in a positive way. And thank you for that. That's a, such a great answer. And just to wind down everything, I, I just had two more questions, but one I was, I, um, I ask many of the, all the guests who come on my show and it's a different question from all of the ones that I've asked, which is what would you ask yourself that I haven't? Hmm. That's, that's a great question. Uh, so one of the things might be, what am I most excited about in the realm of, of medical care moving forward? Um, or what am I most excited about applying in my personal life? Uh, or what am I most excited about independent of anything medical related? So I'll let you pick one of those and I'll answer it. What are you most excited that, or yeah, I'll go with the, the non-medical, uh, application. So I live outside of Portland, Oregon, which is in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the, yeah, so upper left in the United States. And it is very much fall up here, uh, at the time of this recording, it's very gloomy. And this is something that in the past, I would have been a little bit upset about because it means the sun has gone away. But one thing that I'm really excited about is that the waterfalls are restarting and 
you know, they've all been kind of a trickle. Oregon is really known for its waterfalls. And I have a friend coming into town and he also loves nature. We're going to go hike this kind of unexplored waterfall next weekend. And it's, it's an absolutely epic spot in the middle of uh, a mountain range north of me. So while that may not be relevant for anybody here listening, the, the real thing about it is the nature connection has sustained me and my mental health for so many years. And I think finding those types of things and people you can share it with is so important for me. And, and I think is for a lot of people as well. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. And what do you think will be the future of healthcare as we end <laughs> this? <laughs> so things that I'm involved with personally that I think are going to be relevant are, are one, applied immunology. So understanding a lot of what we talked about before, which is that the immune system isn't just some standalone thing that is activated when there's a bacteria or a virus, but the immune system is kind of a central conduit of information and we can modify the immune system in such a way that it improves multiple aspects of our health, including our mental health. So that's one. Another one is the application of psychedelic medicine. Something that I've been talking about a lot more recently. Um, I think that as it relates to specifically depression, but also anxiety, PTSD, psychedelic medications, uh, granted smaller overall studies, um, but show a lot of promise in being able to help people who otherwise would have had what is basically refractory or resistant depression and other similar conditions. So I'm really excited to see that there is a decrease in stigma around the use of psychedelics. I mean, honestly, why do people care so much there are so many worse things people do, right? No one's sitting there yelling at people for getting fast food, even though we know that's bad for your body. But somebody does a psychedelic once and everyone says, oh, you're obviously a horrible person with bad decision-making. Bottom line is psychedelics at scale, when you look at the data, are not associated with any worse outcomes as it relates to mental health and actually are associated with more positive outcomes. So I'm really excited to see how this science can hopefully be translated in a way that allows people who are otherwise not getting adequate care for their mental health to experience some of those benefits. And last thing I'll just say on this, I think most people are not getting adequate care when it relates to their mental health, not people with diagnosed conditions, but just the average person. So I'm really excited to see how that science expands, as well as how it kind of dovetails into some of the mechanisms that are involved with mental health conditions, including depression. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate everything that you've said in this uh, in this episode. And we've talked we've talked about so many topics here, and spanning from when you first went into medicine and um, all the way to brain health, mental health, social media. And uh, I'm so grateful that you were you you came here on this episode, and I've learned so much from this conversation. And um, I know everyone here are gonna take a lot from it. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, Rima, let me just tell you, I've done a lot of podcasts uh, with a lot of people who have been doing podcasts for a long time. And depending on when a listener gets to this one, it's still relatively early, I think, in your podcasting career. And I have to say, you have asked some of the most insightful questions and been one of the best interviewers that I've experienced. So for anyone listening, I would just stay tuned to this podcast because I feel like there's a lot of promise here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Austin. Thank you, everyone listening or watching, and I'll see you in the next episode.